9,567. That's the number of children in foster care in North Carolina in 2014, according to the National Kids Count Data Center of the Annie E. Casey Foundation, 9,567. During that year, just over 5,600 children entered foster care and almost 4,500 children left foster care. And the biggest reason children left foster care that year was because their permanent plan of reunification was achieved. Over 2,000 children, or 45%, were reunified with the parent or the person whose care they were removed from when the abuse, neglect, or dependency case first started. But what happened to the other 55% of the children who left foster care? Almost one in four of those children, 23%, were adopted. One in five were placed in the custody or guardianship of a non-parent, such as a relative, and one in 10 aged out. 2% had other exit reasons. Obtaining a safe, stable, and permanent home for a child within a reasonable period of time is the ultimate goal for these cases, whether that's reunification with a parent, adoption, or something in between, like custody to a non-parent. And whether the permanent plan has been achieved and continued state intervention through both county department action and court oversight is no longer needed is something that the court decides as part of its permanency planning hearings. Welcome to Season 2 of Beyond the Bench, a podcast by the North Carolina Judicial College at the UNC School of Government. I'm Sarah DePasquale, and your host for Season 2, which tells the story of homelessness, neglect, and the child welfare system in North Carolina. During this season, we'll talk about what family homelessness looks like, whether homelessness is child neglect, and if and when it is, how the child welfare system responds to families affected by homelessness. We'll do this by following two court cases from the past year that address child neglect because of allegations related to homelessness. Each episode represents a different stage in the child welfare process, and you'll hear from lots of different people who will share the various perspectives in a case, including shelter providers, county departments, a parent attorney, the children's guardian ad litem, and the court. We're back with our one remaining court case, and here's what's happened so far. The three children, who were two, three, and five when the case first started, were adjudicated by the court as neglected juveniles because they lacked proper care and supervision from their parents, and they lived in an environment that was injurious to their welfare. The family had been living in a van in the woods that did not provide for adequate shelter, heat, food, and hygiene, and the children were exposed to their parents' domestic violence. The children were placed in a kinship placement with their grandmother. Nine months after the children were removed from their parents, there was a permanency planning hearing where the court ordered concurrent permanent plans with a primary plan of reunification and a secondary plan of custody with a court-approved caretaker. The parents were ordered to cooperate with their case plan, which required the father to be employed and the mother, who worked full-time making $11 to $13 an hour, to work with the county department social worker on budgeting and the parents were to obtain and maintain stable housing. The court also ordered the parents to be in weekly contact with the department social worker, attend and participate in mental health treatment and domestic violence counseling, and pay child support. In this last episode, you'll learn about two polar opposite final dispositions, reunification with the parents, which is the permanent plan that must be given priority consideration by the court under North Carolina law, and adoption which may require a termination of parental rights. And you'll find out what happens in our case. 
you'll also learn two new terms, relinquishment and termination of parental rights, or TPR. In our case, the court scheduled a second permanency planning hearing to check on the reasonable efforts that were provided to the parents by the county department and the progress the parents made. Based on the evidence presented regarding the child's best interests, the court can enter an order that continues with those two designated permanent plans, change the permanent plans, or enter an order where one of those permanent plans is achieved. Chrissy Triplett, a program manager with the Catawba County Department, talks about a change in the permanent plan that includes adoption. If the parent is not making progress on their case plan and the activities that the court is recommending that they do, and we can't see that they're going to be able to provide a safe home for their child and ongoing, they're continuing to make these choices that are would put the child in danger, then the social worker and the guardian ad litem, who is also assigned to the case, they may recommend that the, the rights be terminated. And then the court would review that. The court would review and they would hear the case of the termination of parental rights at that point, and the court would make the decision. And the parents have attorneys at this point too who are advocating for them and helping present their case. Prior to the termination of parental rights, the court is going to change the permanent plan for the child. So they typically have two plans throughout the court process. So initially when a child comes into, into custody, the plan is reunification. Through time, if it doesn't look like that plan is going to be able to achieve, the court may change that plan to guardianship with a relative or to adoption. But typically there's two plans. So at initial, we'll be working reunification, but there may be a secondary plan of guardianship where the court's asking us to look for relatives in case reunification doesn't doesn't work out for this child and for this family because we want to make sure permanency is achieved timely for families. So even though reunification is our primary plan, we may be looking at other relatives that are around so that this child doesn't have to linger in foster care. So once the parent gets to the point where they're no longer working their case plan, the court may add adoption to the permanent plan. And this could be prior to a termination of parental rights. Once adoption becomes the permanent plan, we begin starting to look at what resources do we have and typically this is where a social worker is going to write a child profile which is a description of a child and in North Carolina they're registered on a North Carolina um, child it's an NC Kids website where their profiles will go up and then that will let them start to recruit for adopt potential adoptive families we can we will not typically place a child until a child um, the parents have relinquished the rights or the termination of parental rights hearing has occurred um, then they'll be placed in the adoptive home, but we start trying to seek what those resources are prior to the termination of parental rights so that the child can have permanency in a timely manner. In our case, at the second permanency planning hearing, the court found that the parents were not making progress on their case plans. Dad had not obtained employment, paid child support, regularly visited with the children, or attended a domestic violence course. And although still employed and paying child support, mom was not consistently contacting the social worker or visiting with the children. She had not worked with the social worker on budgeting and neither parent had obtained appropriate housing. The relationship between the parents continued to be violent, requiring the police to intervene. And ultimately mom was arrested. The court changed the concurrent permanent plans to a primary plan of adoption and secondary plan of guardianship. In order to achieve a permanent plan of adoption, the county department needs the parents to execute a relinquishment, meaning voluntarily agree in writing under oath to give up or relinquish their rights to custody. That includes decision-making. Their rights to custody is essentially transferred to the agency they execute the relinquishment with. 
The parent also gives up or relinquishes his or her right to any notice of an adoption proceeding. But a relinquishment does not legally terminate a parent's rights. The adoption does that. If a parent is unwilling to execute a relinquishment, a termination of parental rights action must be initiated in court, and the court can terminate the parental rights after a hearing. With some exceptions, an adoption cannot proceed without the parent's consent, relinquishment, or termination of parental rights order. Dorothy Harrison Mitchell talks about discussing a TPR and relinquishment with her client, who's the parent having to contemplate these actions. That is the hardest conversation I've ever had in my, in my whole legal career, is to have to talk to a parent about termination of parental rights, whether it be on the front end or the back end, on the front end talking to them about the possibility of relinquishing their rights as opposed to them being terminated. If a TPR is brought in court, it's another trial. And like the adjudicatory hearing for neglect, it has two stages, adjudication and disposition. An adjudication addresses whether one of the 11 grounds under North Carolina law for termination of parental rights has been proved, and disposition is whether or not it's in the child's best interest. Judge Corpening and I talk about the process when a department seeks a TPR. Well, they come in and it's a two-part process. They first establish um, the, that one or more of the grounds exist to terminate that they've alleged. Um, and, you know, honestly, at, by the time we get to that point, in most of our cases, the grounds aren't an issue. They can be, but, but typically aren't. Uh, but then we, we find grounds, and then we've got to make a separate determination about best interest. And when you find grounds, is that another trial? So, so, so finding grounds is a trial. Thank you. And, uh, and sometimes best interest can be a separate part of that trial. Now, we're authorized under the case law to hear best interest um, evidence during the trial as long as we address best interest separately from grounds. Um, and for example, our guardian won't present anything on grounds typically unless our guardian a lot of unless you know they happen to be a fact witness to something that's happened. But they will always present evidence on best interest and will always argue on best interest. And then sometimes parent attorneys want to put on some separate evidence on best interest. And so you can have a, a two part trial. You've got a two part proceeding and perhaps evidence at two parts. Um, and then and then decision time, you know, deciding whether to cut off that legal relationship or not. Jamie Hamlet talks about a termination of parental rights from the department attorney perspective. Well, you have to have the evidence to prove the ground by clear, cogent, and convincing evidence. Um, what is it that needs to be done? Um, you know, we might process, well, the parents have made these improvements, but not these improvements. Do they need more time? Is this justifiable? Um, under the 12-month ground, have they made reasonable progress? It's not have they done everything and anything, but have they made reasonable progress under their circumstances? Many of our cases don't actually go to a full-blown TPR hearing. A lot of times, right before the termination is scheduled, the parents, after talking and, you know, are preparing their case with their attorney, will make the decision to relinquish, or we will have what we refer to as uncontested or minimally contested TPRs. Um, and, you know, this is a lot about building relationships and people knowing that you really put a lot of effort into preventing this from happening. Um, when I have some social workers come to our county, um, I really encourage them to make full-blown efforts to work with everybody because many people just want to feel that they had a chance. Um, 
And sometimes parents, even at the last minute, can get to the point where they recognize that they can't parent. Um, and so if a parent comes into a TPR hearing and they're willing to sign a relinquishment, we will generally continue the TPR um, hearing, accept the relinquishment. If they don't revoke during the revocation period, then we'll voluntarily dismiss the TPR. When there is a hearing, Dorothy Hairston Mitchell talks about it as a parent attorney. And then I'm still fighting. I mean, the, I'm, as the parent attorney and the client, we're still fighting and we're hoping to convince the judge that those grounds, the, you know, the, 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 back to that, DSS has to, or whoever the petitioner is for the TPR, has to prove that there are grounds th- that are met that says that, they, that their rights should be terminated. And then it goes to the best interest phase, which is, is it in this child's best interest for the parent's rights to be terminated? If the ground that is alleged is proved by clear and convincing evidence, and the court determines it's in the child's best interest, there will be an order that terminates the parental rights. Dorothy Harrison Mitchell and Judge Siler Mack each explains what a TPR means. Biologically, genetically, that is your child, but legally, they're not. And sometimes the light bulb doesn't go off until you realize when I say terminate, when the court says termination, that means these children are uprooted and implanted in somebody else's family. Well, Physically, you are still the parent, and I let them know that. You, every other way, you are no longer the parent. So these children may never, you may never see graduation, you may never go to see prom, you may never be invited to, and it may be when they age out, the day down the road might want to go back and look for you, but legally, they have no connection to you. Judges Hartsfield, Corpening, and Siler Mack talk about what it's like to decide a TPR. I mean, termination is so hard because to me it's so permanent. It's so permanent. By the time we get to that point, my focus is on that child. Right. Um, and, 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 and what's forever going to look like for this child? And is forever going look like, to look like waiting on mom forever? To get, mm-hmm. to get clean. Uh, right. Or is forever going to look like permanence in a reasonable period of time? And, and that's true. And, that's what and, you so, and so that's, that's, that's how I get past that because, yeah. you know, some of, some of our parents at, at termination stage are still working. But but they're not, but they're but they're spinning their wheels. Right. Okay. It's like they're burning rubber on the highway, and they're not moving down the road. And and so then I think that's that's one of the hard calls we have to make. Uh, That's when we have to remember that we ask for our jobs. That's right. Exactly. And and that and that that we make that hard decision, but because it's supposed to be about permanence for the child. That's the reason the statute says we look at that after a year, because General Assembly has said you know we need to be moving to permanence in a year. Dorothy Hairston Mitchell recognizes a TPR is hard for the judges and the parents. And I don't think there's any judge that feels good about a termination of parental rights here. So they'll try to schedule them on. They're, they're really unique with how they schedule them and what days they do it. And, you know, so much as we're not having any termination of parental rights hearings the week of Christmas or the week of Thanksgiving or, you know what I mean, things like that, because they know that this is hard for the clients and the children and then them as well. So they don't want to be a part of, you know, that's what they're going home with. And, you know, so it may be that it's the only case that's set on for a Thursday. And so it allows for us to be able to have that time to, you know, kind of debrief and do all those things with the client that we need to do. And the the judges are very sympathetic to that. If none of the grounds to terminate parental rights are proved, or if a ground is proved, but the court determines it's not in the child's best interest, the court will deny the TPR. 
and this will likely require a change to the child's permanent plan since the adoption will not be able to move forward. But if the TPR is granted, Dorothy talks about how she handles that with her client. I try to just judge, I need some time. I want to walk out with my client. I walk with them. I make sure they're okay. I get them. If they have somebody with them, I make sure they're with that person and they go away with them or keep the social workers away from them because a lot of times it's them coming on, basically bum rushing them and saying, well, can I get this from you? And I need to, can you just let them be right now? Like they just got some of the most devastating news they'll ever get. And you're all, you know, just give them some time. So, yeah, I make space and time for them. I asked Jamie Hamlet whether the children and parents get a chance to see each other again. Um, Generally, if there's a termination, the social worker will schedule what we refer to as a goodbye visit with the parent and child. Um, You know, generally when we're going that way, the social worker is trying to, you know, get everyone prepared without saying that a final decision has been made. Um, A lot of times if the children are in therapy, their therapists have been told, and so the therapist is trying to help the children cope with change. Um, Of course, no one ever tells the child, you know, oh, on such and such a date, there's going to be a TPR. And unless they're older children, sometimes older children who are attending court on a regular basis, um, they know those things. When it comes to the actual decision of the termination of parental rights, it can be very different. Some parents don't necessarily, I don't know what the right word is, blame their social worker, whereas some parents are very angry with the whole department. Um, And so sometimes the social worker has to allow that parent a cooling off period before they reach out to them and say, so, you know, how would you like to handle this going forward? We have some really great adoption social workers who do a great job in their post-adoption work of receiving cards and letters and report cards and trying to help families where, you know, that's appropriate. Um, Especially with our older children who know that they have another family. Um, We, of course, encourage parents, even in my closing argument, I'll often say that regardless of the court's decision, that if the court does terminate the parent's rights, that that parent needs to focus on addressing the issues because in general, our kids will come and look for their birth families at some point. And that parent wants to be in a position to be able to talk with their child and help explain and rebuild those relationships. When there has been a termination of parental rights or a relinquishment, the child may be placed for adoption. I talked with Chrissy Triplett about the steps the department takes to find an adoptive home for a child in its care. And we do adoption committees here. So when we have a child who's legally free for adoption and we're seeking a family, we are going to put their child profile out to neighboring agencies on the NC Kids website, and we're going to collect all the family's information that are interested in that child. And that's what you call a pre-placement assessment so that all that information that the social worker obtains about the family is then put into a home study, which is called a pre-placement assessment. So this social worker is gonna review all the pre-placement assessments and they're gonna bring these families to what is called an adoption committee. 
And in that adoption committee, it's going to be other social workers. We typically include the foster parents where the child's lived. We include the guardian ad litem and any other people that may be significant in that child's life, such as a therapist. We've included grandparents. If the children are living with grandparents and the grandparents are no longer able to care for the children, we have them at the table when we're at an adoption committee. So we review all the families and we try to find the family that is the best match for the child. And sometimes there may be two or three families we pick out of that. And then we interview those families so that we can get a better sense of who is the best match for the child or children that we're wanting to place in their home if they're a part of a sibling group. So once the family's chosen, we start working on a transition plan. And the transition plans really depend on the child's age and their emotional readiness for adoption. But typically a transition is going to last approximately three to five months of them transitioning into the adoptive home. We do not even start filing adoption paperwork until the child has been in that home for six months. And then once the child has been with the adoptive family for six months, and we've worked intensively with that adoptive family on different areas of adoption competencies that we believe make long-term success for that family, then we look at filing what you call an adoption petition, and that starts the adoption process. Just because the primary plan is adoption and a parent has executed a relinquishment or his or her rights have been terminated, not all children who are legally available for adoption have a prospective foster family. According to the National Kids Count Data Center, in 2014 in North Carolina, over 2,400 children in foster care were waiting for adoption. And Chrissy Triplett talked about finding placements. I'm, I'm guessing, I would say about half of the kids a lot of times are adopted by their foster parents or the kinship placement that the kids are in. So our primary piece is to find children relatives that they can be adopted by if they're not able to live with their biological parents. So we have an entire kinship unit that works with these kinship families so that the child can stay with family. If the child's unable to stay with family and we're recruiting for adoptive family, the adoption team then begins to really focus on preparing that child for adoption, helping them understand what's going on, helping them to know what the next steps are, and then they begin really heavily trying to seek adoptive families if we do not have one identified. And that can be depending on the child and depending on you know, where they're at in their life and what they're going through and what work they're needing to do clinically. It can be an easy process or it can be a difficult process for us to find a family because we want to find a family that the family's gonna be successful with the child and the child's gonna be successful with that family. So sometimes finding the right match for the child can take a while. The adoption is a different court case that's separate from the neglect case and separate from the TPR case. And unless certain exceptions apply, it is decided by the clerk of superior court. The adoption is not part of the neglect case. And Chrissy Triplett briefly explains what happens. So the family will have an attorney and they'll file the adoption petition and then the social worker here will submit paperwork recommending the adoption to the clerk of court like you were discussing. Then the clerk of court reviews all the reports and they grant the adoption. And then the child receives an adoption decree, which is um, like a birth certificate. It's showing that these adoptive parents have adopted this child on that date. But the child welfare will close, case will close at the time that the adoption decree is administered. In our case, where adoption was the primary plan, the parents did not execute relinquishments. So the department filed petitions to terminate both the mom's and the dad's parental rights. And after hearings, the court ordered both of their rights terminated to all three of the children. Now that the children are able to be adopted, they could be adopted by their grandmother. And if that happens, the neglect case ends because a permanent plan for the children was achieved. 
what if the parents had made progress on their case plans and the children were part of the 45% of those children in 2014 who left foster care because they reunified with their parents? What's that look like? I asked Chrissy Triplett. So reunification is a great thing when it can happen. So when families are working through their plans and they're making choices that can provide safety for their child, we start working to what we call trial home placement. And this is where the child will then go back to the parent's home with the support of the social worker. So they're still gonna maintain all of the agency supports. So trial home placements will typically last three to six months and the court continues to review the case. And so we continue to support the family so that reunification can occur. And then when that goes successfully, which a majority of the time when we get to that point, it does go successfully, then the court will then close out their case. Dorothy Hairston Mitchell and I talk about trial placements, especially when everyone has agreed to a trial placement and is making a request to the court that it be ordered. So it's, it's the client saying, okay, judge said I get to have my kids in trial placement. When, when are we going to pick them up? <laughs> Did y'all bring them today? Can we go pick him up now from daycare? You know, that it's definitely that for us. And I I want I always ask for it to be put in the order when the pickup will happen. Are we asking we you grant a trial placement, does that mean she can go to the school and get her son today? Or do we need to wait for Friday and make sure we get all their clothes? And I, actually if I know it's coming and I've talked to the DSS and the Guardian of Life and we're in agreement especially, then I'm already I've already made arrangements with the social worker to gather all their clothes, have it already at her house and that way once that order is signed, we can just go and get them. And is there some conversation that's happening with the child at some point? Yes. It's got to be tricky, though, right? Because you don't know if the judge is actually going to approve the trial placement. True. But, I mean, we, we'll have those conversations where we tell that child when we know for sure that it's not, and there's no issue that should be able to be presented to where the judge will have a concern about the trial placement. Um, the judges are really good about trusting um, the work that everybody else has done, it, especially when you have good social worker, good parent attorney, good guardian at litem that's on the case, and we know we can trust that everybody's done their part, and we have a therapist that we've known, and we can trust that what they're saying is actually the case and all of that. So it's usually not an issue with the judge, you know, signing off or signing the order or granting the order for that trial placement. When a trial placement is successful, the court is likely to order reunification so that the permanent plan is achieved. And I asked a county department program manager, a parent attorney, and the judges what it was like. Chrissy Triplett for the department. It is a pretty big celebration. I mean, that parents to make those changes and to be able to return their have their children return to them. That is a huge event and is an exciting event for those parents. And that's what we want to see in every case. And I wish we could see it more because ultimately we want children to return to their birth parents. Birth parents are the best people who can take care of their children. So we hope in every case that a parent can return, the child can return to the parent. Dorothy Harrison Mitchell as the parent attorney. The most rewarding thing for a parent to be able to say, I've, I've fought. I, I admit, I know that it was so many things that happened that I needed to correct and I need to get better and I've done it. And now, so it, what it looks like in court is we go to court and the judge 
grants the order that there is no need for any further reviews, that this parent has corrected all the conditions that led to removal. So the children, we've already been to court before and they've had a trial placement and DSS and the guardian ad litem and everybody's monitored things in the home with the children and everything's going great. And so we come to court and the judge says, the children are back legally in your custody, legal custody, physical custody granted to you. Everybody, and I'm always like, yay, and everybody, I make everybody stand up and clap for my client, and it's usually my client just crying, and now they're saying, the best scenario is the client is able to acknowledge, yes, I know I was, I was, and most of the time it's like, I was upset, I didn't like DSS, I didn't like this system, I didn't want to do anything that y'all asked me to do, but then I realized that I needed it, I needed the help, and I utilized the resources, and I'm so grateful that I've been able to do that, and I got my kids back, you know, and so, yeah, it, it's the best thing. I make sure that we give time for that in the courtroom, because I want not only the client to, to feel what they should feel, but also have other parents that's in the audience and they are able to see, they are maybe be at the front end of a case and they're able to see that it can happen, that you're able to get it done and get your children back because most of them come in and they don't see that on the front end. They don't believe that. They can't even imagine that being a possibility. So it's good for, for them as well to see that. And then it's good for, I mean, other parent attorneys, it's good for the judge to feel like, okay, there are some cases where we can work through it and this is, this is what this court, this system is really about. Because that's the whole goal. You're supposed to come in with the goal of reunification. Most of the time it doesn't feel like that, though. And most of the time it feels like you just took these kids just to have more kids for adoption. But, yeah, so that's, that's the best part of that work. And Judges Hartsfield and Siler Mack. In my court, it looks like everybody in the room standing up clapping. Yeah, we, we yes, cheer. We yes, can stand yes. up first. I know everybody. Oh, we, I, 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 you know, if I know about reunification days, I might even bring a cake and yeah, some balloons. Yeah, celebrate. We celebrate. We celebrate wholeheartedly reunification efforts. When a mama gets her kids back, I got social workers yeah, on mm-hmm. the way with, you know, new matches, whatever needs to be done. I mean, no, it, it's, it's celebrated. It, it's it's almost like somebody who successfully completed probation almost. That's I mean, you applauded, you cheered, you want cheer, families to be yeah. back together. We, Nobody wants to separate hugging, families. Yeah. They hug social it's a great workers. Day. It's a great day. Cupcakes. I get yeah. little bags of candy for the little kids. Everything. It's a, it's a wonderful day where everybody's clapping. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this season and learned about how the child welfare system in North Carolina works. I'd like to thank the following people who were featured in today's episode. Chrissy Triplett, Jamie Hamlet, Dorothy Harrison-Mitchell, Judge Hartsfield, Judge Corpening, and Judge Silent Mack. In addition, thank you to Danielle Butler, Adrian Rombach, Jessica Ford, Dina Fleming, Cindy Bizzle, Dee Horde, Carmen Muggy, and Judge Hands for their willingness to participate and share their perspectives with you in Season 2. I'd also like to give a big thanks and shout-out to the production team, Stephanie Penke, Duncan Yetman, and Ben Trybulski. I'm your host, Sarah DePasquale, and this concludes Season 2. The court cases discussed throughout this season are In Re J.R., which was decided by the North Carolina Court of Appeals on October 6, 2015, and that was the case where the mom was living with her 18-month-old in the shelter. The other case is In Re D.L.W., which involved the family that was living in the van. 
The Court of Appeals decided the case about the dad on May 19, 2015, and the North Carolina Supreme Court decided mom's case on June 10, 2016. To learn more about my work and the various educational outreach products and programs by the UNC School of Government, visit us online at sog.unc.edu. Podcast adjourned.